1: Yes, it is, and welcome back. As we head into our third hour this Tuesday, April twenty sixth, we do so every Tuesday in our third hour with Hugh Hallman and Lewis Hallman. Hugh Hallman is uh, ma- former mayor of Tempe, an attorney, in town, an educator. If you go to his uh, actually, if you go to his uh, website, CV at uh, at his law firm, it's 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 noble and uh, it's impressive. Lewis Hallman is the managing director of Inside. Analytics, LLC. Inside. Much less impressive. I did not say that. You're much less young. You have time to go
0: there. He's much more young. He's and much less you, old.
1: I have no doubt will, as Homer said, have um, surpassed your father in excellence, which I learned this morning Moses and Aaron said about Moses' sons who were killed prematurely. Isn't that maybe one of the highest things, uh, uh, compliments a father could, could, could learn is that his son has surpassed him?
0: That is one of not just the highest compliments. It, it should be the goal of every parent to have your children nice. eclipse you. Nice. And that has already taken place. Uh, they just haven't figured that out.
1: Aw. Um, is this like uh, 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 Barry Goldwater winning the 64 election? It just took 16 years to count the votes.
0: Exactly right. And Got his it. name became Ronald Reagan. Yeah,
1: there you go. All right. I, I, you, you took that as a compliment, I hope. That you I You raised did. a son who is –
0: No, no, yeah. no. My, my, all of my sons <laughs> are significantly smarter than I am. All of them are much better looking than, than I am. They all have much better personalities than I do. And so I have little doubt that if they put their minds to it, they will achieve significantly greater things than I've ever achieved, notwithstanding your kind comments about my resume.
1: Yeah, well, it's well deserved. Uh anyway, uh enough mutual corruption here. Our graver uh, business frowns on this levity to quote someone I've been quoting all day, Shakespeare, and we'll probably do so again. Hugh, you um you are probably, if not um the United States is certainly clearly the Southwest's and Arizona's uh, uh uh Naples Ultra expert on things Kazakhstan which is an interesting niche area of many of your interesting niche areas of knowledge. This You've been talking to the audience about Russia and Kazakhstan and Kazakhstan and the world and Kazakhstan and issues of freedom uh, for as long as uh, you have been on this show with us as a regular, so going on a little more than two years. It seems like now that import, that information is just becoming absorbable and acceptable acceptable is the wrong word, absorbable and apprehensible to a lot of other observers who are waking up and saying, "Uh, this Hallman guy may have something. Today, Walter Russell Mead, Walter Russell Mead in the Wall Street Journal picked up on it in a big piece titled Russia squeezes Kazakhstan. Uh, I hope everything I said is accurate. Always correct me if not. But what is Walter Russell Mead saying and why is it interesting that he's doing it now? So first take of all, take that any way yes, you want. Most you most people those.
0: start by saying, Who, "What is Kazakhstan? Who cares? Yeah. And how do you spell it?" Uh, and it happens to be the ninth largest country on our planet. It is, as some people would say, the size of Alaska and Texas combined. I prefer to say it's half the size of the United States, um, the the uh, main portion, the forty eight states, and it uh, it only has currently about eighteen and a half million people in that space. Uh, it has, for about 600 years, been an independent nation. The Kazakhs are uh, Turkic. When?
1: I'm sorry, how long? Uh,
0: about 600 years. Okay. So the Kazakhs are Turkic, uh, Mongol, Chinese, sort of that entire area mix, uh, and are a independent, separate race of people identified. And they have struggled for most of that 600 years to avoid the kinds of takeovers that their stronger neighbors, their larger neighbors, like to impose. So uh, Genghis Khan or Genghis Khan, if you prefer, uh, swept from China all the way over to Europe. We all were taught as young kids in high school or grade school, gee, this brave Italian kid, uh, Marco Polo, went to China. What we weren't taught is that the Chinese uh, at the time, the the empire stretched all the way to the eastern border of Italy, more or less, and half of Austria. So he just stepped over the border and he was suddenly in China. (laughs) that's great. That's the reality. Yeah. Uh, China was at the time the largest empire uh, and, and in all of history. Yeah, there, fair enough. Um, so Lewis is going to correct me. I'm trying to <laughs> use modern terms so people understand uh, the Han um, uh, dynasty. So here we have uh, this country
2: that is – The, the in, Han dynasty is an earlier Chinese dynasty. This would be the Khanate the from the Mongols, not, yes, not no, the, the Han the, dynasty. And different, the, different people.
0: Khanet is now exactly what Kazakhstan then adopted after Genghis Khan and his grandsons uh, had taken over the place. The three main tribes, they're called Jews or actually hordes. It's the translation is horde. There are three main tribes. I'm giving you this background because yeah, question, this is going to relate to the you Ukraine care? situation, right? What right, you've yeah. got are three groups of people that are all related. They're in the same way that the four southern tribes in Arizona are related and they had this nation. This nation in the 1700s was being threatened again by the Chinese dynasty, and so the the, the three khans, the khan's, um, ended up doing treaties with Russia, with the czar Tsar and czarina over the years, over 40 years. And what happened? Just what one sees happening still today. The Tsars the then sent Russian ethnics into the territory of Kazakhstan, just as they did into Ukraine, to begin taking over territory in the name of the Tsar. Now, the treaty was for preservation and protection by Kazakhstan from China to keep them from being invaded by China. And instead, they got invaded by the Russians, which is not unusual for the Russian Empire over this period of time. Uh, Russia itself really you know, dates back to about 800 when Muskvy was the, the, the entire country. So now you end up with the fact that the Kazakhs know that the Russians are not trustworthy. They kicked Kazakhs off their historic lands and claimed it for the Russians. And as a result, by the time Kazakhstan became independent of the Soviet Union on December 16, 1991, about half of the population in the northern third of the country were Russian ethnics. The moment of independence, a number of Russians left the country and went back to Russia, fearing that the Kazakhs would get even for the nasty behavior that the Russians had had meted out on them. the the Kazakhs didn't behave that way. Instead, they had an open society and worked diligently to try to create a free society. Is it perfect? By no stretch. We're starting with a a country that had a guy who was a general secretary of the the, uh, Communist Party become its first president. Was he a communist? No more than most people in Kazakhstan were. They were living with a society in which if you were going to be in charge, you needed to be a member of the Communist Party, and that's the way it was played.
1: I assume if you needed to get a job, you needed to be a member. All
0: of the above. Well, not not a job, but you had to – if you were going to go Certain up Certain jobs, yes. Yeah. And so now you've got this country that declares its independence. And the very first move that this guy makes – he's the pr- first president of Kazakhstan – was to reach out to the George Herbert Walker Bush administration. This is a country positioned relative to Russia, just as Mexico is to us. Uh, to the US. And so now you've got the first call is to the US and the first request is we want to get all of these Soviet nuclear weapons off our territory. And the George Herbert Walker Bush negotiates that deal and the when we had this kind of transition, the Bill Clinton administration picked it right up and entered a treaty, more or less a deal with Kazakhstan to eliminate all the nuclear weapons in Kazakhstan, first time ever in history. The second time was Ukraine. So the Ukrainians followed the same model. They did not want the Soviet weapons on their territory. And so we did a deal, ultimately, that we've talked about in the show before. But there was a more formalized treaty signed by Russia, the United States, Great Britain, and Northern Ireland that guaranteed the territory of Ukraine would be sacrosanct. The same deal was cut with Kazakhstan. Now fast forward Vladimir Putin. We all know today what that deal meant with Ukraine. It meant nothing to Russia. Why? Because we had uh, a president of the United States in 2009 desperately wanting to prove that he deserved the uh, peace prize that he was awarded uh, prematurely. And he did a deal with Vladimir Putin to have a reset button after Russia had done all
1: about the peace prize. Oh, my gosh. Yes, Yes, you're right. You're You're totally right.
0: And so he had to live up to that. So uh, Barack Obama with his secretary of state, uh, Hillary Clinton, hit the reset button with Russia telling everybody in the region, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, all the stands to the south, that the United States is a feckle, fickle ally. Kazakhstan had been triangulating between China immediately to the east, Russia to the north and the U.S. in a very Nixonian move to try to balance those three powers so Kazakhstan could retain and maintain its independence and build a free and open society. That's the goal. Why do I say that's a goal? Again, the very first place that the president of Kazakhstan goes for help is the United States. That should impress the heck out of US citizens and Americans to go, this is a, they a guy. To cozy who,
1: up to us, they want them. to cozy up right. to
0: us, not Russia and China. Right. Hold all of those Hold things thought, set speak. a stage for what we need to talk about when we come back. Good. I won't try to take all of Lewis's time to no, talk right. about uh, Pareto optimality, but we'll get there. <laughs>
1: We're going to do Pareto optimality as well. Don't go away. We will be right back. We've got some interesting political philosophy to do with you all as well. I'm Seth Leapson. They're the Holmans. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, portions of which are brought to you by Balance of Nature. They're fruits and veggies I take every day. Took a little extra today because I went on a little extra long run, and I was just a little worn out from it because you can't overdose on fruits and vegetables. You can take as much as you want if you find yourself burning the candle at both ends a little bit or uh, burning the midnight oil, whatever the expression is. But I take it every day, have been for years. It's kept me well. It's kept my immunity boosted. It's kept my energy high balanceofnature.com, 10 servings of fruits and vegetables in one daily dose. If you do order their fruits and veggies, balanceofnature.com, make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Hugh Hallman, you were talking to us about springboarding off of the piece in the Wall Street Journal today on Russia and Kazakhstan about Kazakhstan's desire – in seeking ind- in, in achieving independence, its desire to affiliate with the United States, not Russia. And then, of course, lessons we're going to draw for the, what's going on uh, with Ukraine right now and what could happen to this. Uh, would you call Kazakhstan a growing democracy, a fledgling democracy? What would you call it? I'd probably
0: you- call it a fledgling democracy. Okay. It's 30 years old. So why do we care? Yeah. We should care now because look at what's at stake with what Russia has done to Ukraine. We have the threat of nuclear war. We have a uh, the Emperor of uh, Russia is now making threats not only of nuclear war but of the uh punishments he will meet out uh, on Europeans and the United States if he does not get his way. We have very difficult uh roads ahead of us. Lewis has pointed this out in a few shows about the fact that what is at risk now if Vlad is embarrassed to a point uh, that he loses sufficient face, he might just push the wrong button on his table of buttons to push. In fact, one of the things the United States is not doing is imposing sanctions on his girlfriend. So he's been uh, uh, purported reportedly dating a, uh, a an Olympian, a a, uh, a gymnastic dancer who is now 39 years old and purportedly the uh, mother of his three children, a younger uh, a, a, a child born, I think, in 2008, nine and then twins. So is this is,
1: our version of giving him conjugal visits or something like that to maintain his sanity. Uh, well,
0: no, it's worse than that, because the U.S., uh, the, the Treasury prepared the sanctions against her uh-huh. to impose some real pain on Vlad. Yeah. And the NSC pulled them back precisely because and this is a I think it's an appropriate calculation to think about. If we push him too far, will he break? Yeah. Will he do something so untoward that we 're really stuck and so that literally is something that the u s is not engaging in. Uh, it is not sanctioning his girlfriend, notwithstanding it sanctioned his two oldest daughters who are older than his girlfriend by the way, um, <laughs> and, uh, better and better. Uh, yeah, and so it is a patent place. Uh, you see some of the creepy pictures of him when he first meets her when she 's eighteen, and that sort of thing it, it, it 's a little strange. But that's the level of why we should care. We have Ukraine next to Europe being absolutely destroyed by Russia in a move that shocks the conscience. And we are stuck because Russia is a nuclear power. Ukraine and Kazakhstan both gave up their nuclear weapons to the United States as part of an effort to have the U.S. move toward them and assist them. And then we proved we were a feckle ally because Bar- Barack Obama hit the reset button. Uh, Ukraine had been controlled by Russian f- sort of uh, controlling interests out of Moscow. And in 2014, in February 2014, Ukraine's overthrow the Russian over, uh, overlords, elect a duly elected Ukrainian uh, leader. And the response to that was to roll tanks from Russia into Crimea and take over Crimea. Now we've had the second iteration of that. Barack Obama was in charge of the president's office in this country when Crimea was lost and nothing happened to Vlad. In fact, he then went on to do other terrible things around the world and nothing happened. We then have a bit of a reset. And what happens? Joe Biden gets elected and Vladimir Putin is it's not lost on him that Joe trained under Barack And so Vlad tests a few things and starts running up balloons about the fact that Ukraine is not a real country. It's a historic accident. It's really part of the Russian Empire. And he's saying exactly the same things about Kazakhstan, exactly the same things. Then there's a coup attempt in Kazakhstan, which may have some Russian fingerprints on it. It was the former first president. His folks appear to want to have taken retaken power. The current duly elected president elected in June of 2019 stayed in power and pushed back and ignited the collective security treaty organization troop protections, which are kind of like NATO for former Soviet countries, which included, however, 2000 Russian troops. Twenty five hundred troops came into Kazakhstan in early January and took control of the country in, in the wave of violence that was taking place in 11 major cities with infrastructure being blown up. And we heard about it in the West only because, quote, peaceful protesters, unquote, were being shot. What was really going on the ground was an, a coup attempt. And Russia, with Vladimir pounding his chest about how important he was, and he was in charge of solving this problem for Kazakhstan, put 2,000 of his best troops on the ground. However, on January 11th, the Kazakhstani president announced that all the CSGO troops were going to be leaving by January 19th, and they did. And that moment that that happened, I knew that that Ukraine was in trouble because Russia did not want to split its best troops off and have them in Kazakhstan. The Kazakhstanis would not put up with Russian troops there very long, and instead he redeployed them on the Ukrainian border. It should not have surprised the West, and I, I must admit, I'm grateful that— the uh, the Biden administration started leaking its intelligence to the West, to all of the Europeans, to say, you folks are fools. This guy's going to invade. And why we should care about Kazakhstan is because it's this enormous country. It only has 18 million people. It has about 70,000 troops that could protect it. And more important, it has the largest oil field in the world outside of the Middle East. Some of the most important rare earth metals other metals like copper and the, the like, it's an extraordinarily uh, ore and mineral-rich and oil and gas-rich country. And Vlad wants to take that for those resources.
1: You know, it seems to me most Americans, by a large measure, didn't think much about, much less care about the Ukraine until Ukraine until it was invaded by Russia, because then they saw the humanitarian uh, and social disaster of that and implications with regard to international relations.
0: And security for Europe.
1: Right. Which raises the question, you know, that and everyone was asking within the first couple of weeks of Russia going in Ukraine, how could we have stopped it? Um, and that is, I think. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think the poignancy of this Wall Street Journal piece that you're referencing, it does raise the question now having learned what Russia's designs are and seen what they are at least interested in, if not capable of, how do we prevent them from doing to Kazakhstan what they did to Ukraine. That's really the most important question to draw from everything you're saying.
0: Correct. And 30 years of work is what this has been about. So my okay. work actually started in Ukraine. OK. But because the Russians were in charge, it all fell apart. Ma- Kazakhstan is a different story. And the U.S. and Arizona in particular has done a lot to make it a much securer place, but we need to do more, and there's a lot at stake for
1: us. All right. Maybe say another word, and then we're going to do a little political philosophy as well with uh, Lewis Hallman on the other side. I'm Seth Leepson, They're the Hallmans. We will be right back. little Don Williams for you there with the Hallmans here in studio, as is uh, my uh, privilege and honor to host them uh, every Tuesday. Um, Hugh, final thought on this, uh, because the point of learning about Kazakhstan and the point of this op-ed in the Wall Street Journal in relation to Ukraine is hopefully not just descriptive, but prescriptive. And the uh, prescription
0: is this, that we didn't do enough for Ukraine to make sure this wouldn't happen. We have done a lot with Kazakhstan. Arizona as a state is the State Department's selected state to pair up with Kazakhstan of all crazy things. And the Arizona National Guard has been on the ground for 29 years helping to train their military to improve it, to professionalize it, to help secure the Kazakhstani border from terrorism. Yes, it's coming out of Afghanistan, those kinds of things. We need to do more. And so what we can start with is folks ought to know today where Kazakhstan is and why it's so important to the U.S. before – Russia tries to roll tanks. And the, the, the terrible thing about Ukraine that has been a benefit to Kazakhstan is that it's happened. Had Vladimir Putin rolled tanks into Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan would currently be in the Russian Empire and now we'd still be facing Ukraine. That he did it in the opposite order means that the world is now watching and should be watching specifically Kazakhstan and Taiwan. The Chinese are now very nervous about doing anything about Taiwan because they now know what the consequences would be. And Russia has been chipped back enough that I think Kazakhstan is is in, in a better protected place. Two pieces on
2: that as well. Uh, I, I'd also agree just and add the note that China is particularly precarious about Taiwan not only because they've seen the degree to which sanctions are imposed – and weapons are, are, are funneled into the, to the combatants but also because now they're seeing the logistical and organizational problems Russia has had to do it, deal with and is understanding that if should they choose to strike Taiwan, they will have not only all of those problems but also the, the compounding factor of having to operate this invasion across 40 miles of water. Which is a unique and difficult thing.
1: Yeah, so the ability for China to take Taiwan isn't quite as easy as a lot of people assume. No, no, although way one does presume China is learning from Russia's problems, and, right? And trying to reverse engineer
2: them. The other, the other final piece I would note just before we we cut away from Kazakhstan is that Kazakhstan is in a, a uniquely different position than Ukraine because it exists right between Russia and China, both of whom are sort of near-peer competitors to the United States, meaning that we have interests against both of them in the region, but also given that the two don't really like each other much. The, um, the Russians- the yeah, wait a, a minute. Their a- friendship
0: goes endlessly.
2: Right. That, so so problem. endlessly that they have a stated security policy that, that uh, the Russians will use nuclear weapons- uh, o- o- a- in response to any Chinese invasion into Siberia, given especially that there are about 4 million Russians on that side of the border compared to 100 million Chinese people. You know, it's a, it's a very interesting security situation for Moscow. Yeah, they, they, they really love that position. And so anything <laughs> that kind of negotiates that, that strategic pickle is, uh, is very useful for the U.S., So all the more reason to be involved in the region.
0: So I think that gives a reason for listeners to go look at a map and understand where Kazakhstan is relative to Russia and China and why it sits over the top of the Middle East as being our best ally when we have troubles in places like Afghanistan and the like. Uh, They have refused to follow Russia down this uh, path. They have refused to recognize the two breakaway regions. They've refused to send troops. They've got a gun to their heads. The Russian, the Russian pipeline that comes out of Kazakhstan and supplies Europe is Russian, and the Kazakhstani oil supplies are now being held up by that. The Kazakhstan economy is taking a terrible beating because of that. And uh, stupid things like U.S. phone companies treat Kazakhstan and Russia as the same place because they've assigned the same area code to them.
1: You know, uh, we'll start our thing, Country our political code. philosophy thing, on the other side of this break, Lewis, if that's cool, just so we can uh, give you the full uh, the, the full segment on it uh, and then some. But uh, one of the things I want to bookmark for a future conversation is what it means to be an ally of the United States, Um, You know, there's a history here of a lot of people who thought they were allies of the United States and ended up realizing it matters who the president of the United States is. Uh, uh, as to the integrity of that alliance. This goes back a long ways, obviously. But I thought that would be an interesting thing. Let me uh, pause real quick as we go to break and put in a word for our newest sponsor, which I love. We'll come back on Political Philosophy with Lewis and Hugh. But what if you could do well by doing good? What if you could invest in a secure and collateralized portfolio, earning exceptional fixed returns while actually helping other people i'm talking about people who are drowning in private student debt and they have no help and no hope why refi refinances defaulted private student loans where others will not And you can invest in this company. I have seen the business model. I have seen the evidence of what they do. I'm telling you, I know these guys at Y-Refi, and they are fantastic, and so is their model. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then R-E-F-Y dot com. Y-Refi is in the business of helping people that others won't, and you can be too. Kind of makes you feel good, doesn't it? Go to investyrefi.com or give them a call at eight five five I'm Seth. They're the Hallmans. We'll be right back. I saw recently that Debbie Harry is doing a new concert and it's going great. I think at age seventy three, I was just thought of that as I'm hearing to this. Uh, what is that "Heart of Glass" or whatever that song is called? Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Hugh Hallman and Lewis Hall. Hugh drove the last segment, a uh, couple segments. Uh, Lewis, you had something on your mind you thought was kind of uh, worth tossing around and a little bit, a uh, little bit interesting for us. Go for
2: it. Sure. So it, it may be a bit plebeian, but bear with me. I, I, I have been. Really contemplating the issue of inequality over the last couple of weeks, and that it's a very—it's a society destabilizing mechanic. And I think that both liberals and conservatives do a really bad job in, in talking about it. Uh, let me let me see if I can give you an example of this. Are you familiar with the Pareto distribution? No. Awesome. So the the Pareto distribution is a statistical. This isn't the 80-20 thing. This is, is it? this is in fact sort of the 8020 thing. Okay, a thing. little bit then. Go ahead. Right. So so okay. the 8020 rule is a very simplified sort of heuristic that kind of describes the phenomenon. I'm going to give you the real version in a second, but the 8020 rule basically stipulates that in most domains of human endeavor whether it's say I don't know number of hockey goals scored number of academic research papers written, number of citations on academic research papers. Number of times someone picks up the milk for the household. Sure. record Records produced, any whatever number, it happens right. to be. Basically any knowledge. humane of human productivity or creativity. Uh, the 80-20 rule stipulates that 80 percent of the work or the results are done by 20 percent of the people. And it, it's sort of a compression of the Pareto distribution. Now, the actual rule, the more sort of more rigorous rule, is actually a lot worse than the 80-20 rule. It says that half of the results are performed or, or attributed to the square root of the number of people in the endeavor. Okay. Now, the reason that that's very different from the 80-20 rule is because it causes the the basically the inefficiency of that rule to increase with scale. So let me give you an example here. If we've got 10 people in a firm, right, then the Pareto rule would imply uh, – the Pareto distribution would imply that three per, three of them are doing half of the output. But if we've got 10,000 people in a firm, well, then suddenly only 100 of them are doing half of the output. And the other 99 percent of the people in that firm are then sort of all competing together for the other half. It's much, much less efficient on sort of a per capita distribution of output. And so the reason that this is important is that over the last 150, 100 years or so, we have opened up domains of competition to make them much, much, much larger, much more accessible to people. And by massively increasing the size of the pools, we massively dilute the returns and the gains to those pools. So uh, the University of Chicago paper called The Economics of Superstardom which is uh, does a really good analysis of this, and it looks at opera singers in the late 19th century. So back then, before you've got the proliferation of, of voice recordings, right, that you could then listen to the best uh, opera singer in the world, you'd have to actually make do with physical performances. And so even the very, very best person in the world can only fit about 2,000, 3,000 people into an opera hall, and they're going to be doing all of the major cities, and that leaves plenty of space, plenty of field for the third rate, fifth rate, twentieth rate opera singers, right? You can still, you know, go to Jackson, Mississippi and, and see a regional company perform and that that those economies can exist. But as soon as music recordings are introduced, then suddenly we we massively increase the amount of geographic competition that, that everyone is facing. And so suddenly Everyone is faced with a choice. Do I listen to the 5th, 20th, twentieth-rate whatever right. opera company or do I buy a recording of the best person in the world and listen to that one? Well, most people chose the latter. And so consequently, the returns to being the very, very, very best opera singer massively increased. The, uh, the overall quality of opera that most people got to listen to massively increased. But the compensation of the typical opera singer was, was – absolutely decimated it was it completely collapsed oh, it's coming together okay i'm right. with you yeah and so you can also look at this in the in the housing markets right. that we've been seeing recently right so if you were looking to buy a house before the advent of online listings right if you were looking to buy in phoenix we well, would be facing the competition of everyone that wants to live in phoenix and the local phoenix, phoenix investors that want to have a have a property that they want to want to rent out but now given the, the proliferation of i buyers and uh, uh, on- online platforms. Now you're not only facing everyone in Phoenix and the Phoenix investors, you're also fighting the California relocation people who want to take their, their massive stock bonuses and move over to to get better property deals. You're fighting the New York-based hedge fund. You're fighting the Silicon Valley iBuyer. And so the, the competition at the local level has massively, massively increased. And this happens in, in many, many, many domains of human endeavor. And so The only real prayer that we have technologically is that we can invent new games, as it were, that we can then all try to participate in faster than we scale them up and then block off access to to all but the most highly, highly competitive. When it comes to the issue you started
1: on with this, uh, Lewis, uh, the issue of equality, is this the inherent problem with equality in a capitalistic society? Well, uh, actually no. No, comes. no. Okay. So
2: so it's not the inherent equality. Everyone does this. They always make this a problem of capitalism. It's completely infuriating to me. It's much deeper than that. It's a problem of human organization more than it is a problem of capitalism. The Chinese
0: have the very same problem right. we have because their their markets are being run the same way. They all have social media. They can use the internet to do everything Lewis is describing and that means the best and brightest get more highly compensated – China is now trying to take some action against that as
2: a social matter. Right, that's why they're very interested in common prosperity. Part of the reason yes. that they're having so much difficulty maintaining their ideological cohesion is that they've had to undergo this massive process of industrialization and thus reweighting and rescaling all of the games of human endeavor. But they've only done it in about fifty years instead of the two hundred and fifty that we spent doing it. So So it's much, much more aggressive and it's a much more of a culture-shocky kind of thing that they have to recognize. So when we look at inequality,
1: economic inequality, let us say, is there a way to look at this model or – would you call it a model or – Sure, yeah. A distribution. A distribution analysis. Is there a way to look at this distribution analysis to reframe the way we think about human inequality? Absolutely. You want to do that on the other side of this break? We'll close with that. I'm Seth Liebson. They're the Hallmans. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Lewis Hallman. you were doing a fascinating uh, overview of a different way to view equality, human inequality uh, in America using the Pareto...
2: Pareto distribution.
1: The Pareto distribution. Go ahead and put a bow on it for now and you know set a table because I want to do more of this in the future. Uh, the way we talk about human equality and inequality in this country needs a new reframing. I think this might get us to one.
2: Right. So, So all too often I think we spend our time blaming each other and our policy solutions as for why inequality exists. And if only we could come up with the right set of social programs and realign the incentives perfectly, then maybe some sort of utopia would happen where there is no inequality. And this is just, just to me, it's it's laughable. Um, inequality seems to be a state of nature. And I, I, I submit the Pareto distribution as evidence of that, that it is so dominant and shows up in so many domains of activity, it seems as though it is a natural law. Again, that is the idea that the square root of the number of actors make up half of the output in any any given system of human production. And I, I want to finally just close this out by, by saying that both uh, liberals and conservatives think about inequality fundamentally incorrectly. Liberals believe that Inequality can be solved because if we – we can just retrain people to do anything, right? The, the old learn to code meme sort of came out of that uh, about over the last decade. Conservatives get it wrong because they think that anyone, if they work hard enough, can overcome any adversity. And that is technically incorrect. There is a finite limit to the returns of hard work. If you just don't have the other necessary endowments to succeed in a domain, you won't. And it's I can't play basketball
0: to save my life. right.
2: right you know exactly. there's a there's a I, I am not a coordinated man either. Thank you for that. And so <laughs> you know <laughs> I, I, I will never be a great sportsman, and that's just something that that you and I will both have to live with. Uh, and so once we start thinking about these as part of the, the human tragedy of being rather than the consequence of some arcane policy decision, I think that there's a there's a route which we can maybe stop seeing one another as evil or misguided for advocating certain policy positions and rather just as actors trying to navigate what is indeed a very, very hard and complex world that we really do understand all too little about. Good, good. And because this is going to
1: help get us through uh, some of the temptation to the kinds of things AOC and the new, new modern Democratic Party um has, uh, has foisted upon us. I, in my monologue in the first hour, I was referencing a caller, Doug, who some months ago put it wonderfully. There is no level of socialist failure that can be demonstrated that will convince socialists of its weakness, just as there seems to be no level of capitalist or democratic success that can demonstrate that we can demonstrate that we'll convince socialists of, uh, of, of capitalism and democracy's decency. So I do think we, we need to get to a place where, where, we can, where we can start convincing the rest of America of the things, as Plato said, they used to know. Thank you for that, Lewis. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. I'm Seth Liebson. They're the Hallmans, and class is dismissed.